Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth. We're so happy that you decided to join us today. This is the teaching podcast from our Sunday worship service, recorded at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Our goal as a church is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. We hope that this message inspires you and helps to lead you deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Morning, Christ Fellowship family. How are we? Doing all right? Oh, we're alive today. I like it. I like it. Muy macho. A lot of, a lot of good energy. <laughs> well, I just want to really quick thank everybody who's joining us, us through the live stream right now. As always, it's an honor and pleasure to have you with us. And uh, real quick, I just want to give it up one more time for all our pastors. Uh, thank you so much for your service, for being obedient to God's calling. It's an amazing thing, and your faithfulness has definitely been felt and impacted, I'm pretty sure, in each and every single one of our lives. Well, if you are here with us for the first time, whether either it's in person or through the live stream, you have caught us in the middle of Paul's epistles to the churches in the New Testament. You've actually caught us in the middle of his letters, which is another word for epistle, his letters to the churches. And last week, Pastor Carlos gave us a really amazing message through the book of Colossians. And if you were unable to you know, either watch it or show up in person, I highly recommend you go to our Facebook page or to our YouTube page. All of our messages are on there. I promise you, you will not regret it. So this week, though, this week, as we continue forward in our journey, every single one of us here right now is going to be taking a trip. No, I'm not rich. I'm not taking you by plane. I'm not taking you by train or by bus or anything like that. But we're visually and mentally going to imagine ourselves taking a trip because we are going to go to the churches in Thessalonica or Thessalonica, depending on how you want to pronounce it, because those are the next books in the New Testament that Paul talks about, specifically First and Second Thessalonians. Now, one really cool thing about First and Second Thessalonians and the churches in Thessalonica at this time is that we actually get to see and witness with our very own eyes this church being planted. Like literally, we get to see it unfold right before our very eyes in the book of Acts. And really quick, I just want to go there so we can see it happen because I really believe that it lends itself to the text and to the reason why Paul wrote the epistles of First and Second Thessalonians. You don't have to go there. It's going to show up right behind me on the screen. Again, we're not going to spend too much time at all. It says this in Acts. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, try saying that five times fast, back to back. Believe me, I sat there and I was just like, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom... Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So basically, Paul went to Thessalonica, and he basically gave them the gospel. He gave them the gospel. He told them about Jesus' suffering. He told them about the cross. He told them about his death. He told them about his resurrection. He told them about him rising from the dead. And from that point forward, the church in Thessalonica was born. 
It was planted. And I just love the fact that we actually get to see it here in the scriptures. Now, just to give you an idea, before I give you some quick facts about the church in Thessalonica, I just want to give you guys an image, an image of where this place was located and why it was so important at this time in in the Bible, because again, it lends itself to Paul's epistle. And with me, I geeked out, I brought a map. I'm going to show it right here. Boom, look at that. Look at all that cool little map right there. Look, you don't even have to find it. I highlighted it for you because look at all those words right there. It's very confusing, right? But look, you have Thessalonica, Thessalonica right there at the top, circled in red. You have Philippi, you have Corinth, you have Ephesus. These are all these places that Paul went on his missionary journey because we have the books of First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, and Philippians. These are all, but if you notice, Thessalonica is kind of tucked away. It's kind of tucked away in this bay kind of like cul-de-sac of an ocean type area. Now, this was important because Thessalonica at this time in history was considered a famous port. It was considered a famous harbor. And the reason why is because the jump-off point for anywhere you wanted to go in that area, whether to the east or to the west, was from Thessalonica. Actually, it was considered a converging point, if you want to really read into the history of it, it was considered a converging point of all different types of culture because of its famous port. If you wanted to access the Roman Empire, if you wanted to go to the Greek cities, if you wanted to go anywhere within that region, the chances are you would have to pass through Thessalonica first in order to get there. And because of its famous location and because it was a popular jump-off point, people didn't just come to go there and then leave. Some people actually stayed because of the fact it was so famous. There was so much through traffic. They realized, yo, I can make a really good buck here if I stayed. So in one location, if you can just imagine, you had Roman influence. You had Greek influence. You had all these different types of influences and governments. You even had a Jewish synagogue that was there because we just read about it in the book of Acts. And if you can imagine, you had all these different types of belief systems, all these different types of religions, all these different types of gods, small g, all these different idols that were going there and all in one location. If you really want to get a good image and a picture of it, actually, all you have to do to see what, you know, to kind of like, oh, wow, like how, how busy was it? You know, what did it really look like? Just look at the Elizabeth Port. It's a few blocks from here. You have ships coming in and coming out, dropping off goods, picking up goods. That port down there is super busy. It's super busy. Elizabeth is actually known because of that port. And when I take a look back at Thessalonica, and I take a look at Elizabeth, I can't help but think, you know, we have a whole bunch of different cultures. We have a whole bunch of different religions. We have a whole bunch of different belief systems in this city. And I can't help but think, wow, that was present 2,000 years ago, and we're still dealing with it today. We're not too different. We're not too different. And this is where Jesus sends Paul 
say, hey, Paul, I need you to go to this place that has all these different types of belief systems and influence. I need you to go there to preach my gospel. And Paul goes, and a church was planted. And I can only imagine how many of us here would feel the same way, would act in the same way, if God called us to do the same thing here. So here are just some quick facts about First and Second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians has five chapters, and Second Thessalonians only has three chapters. They're very short books in retrospect, but the reality is there are so much in it that if you really wanted to get a good grasp of it, you can spend a week or two on it, and you, know, and, and you still probably wouldn't be finished with it. First Thessalonians was written between 51 and 53 AD, and Second Thessalonians, which I think is pretty cool, was only written six months after the fact. Six months. They're actually very close in proximity in terms of writing, and I'll tell you why in a second. Most biblical scholars can agree that First and Second Thessalonians, they were Paul's first epistles, his very first ones. They were written 20 years after the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection, meaning, which I think it's pretty important, that everybody who was alive during Jesus' death and resurrection, they were most likely still alive when Paul wrote this. So they were able to, like, compare and contrast whether Paul had it right or had it wrong. He had it right. The style of writing is also an epistle, a letter. The author is obviously the person we're talking about right now, the Apostle Paul. Now, because they are so close in proximity, First and Second Thessalonians have very similar themes. They have very similar themes that run through both books. As always, one of the themes that's very common with Paul is Christian living, Flat off the bat, how to live out the word of God in our lives, how to live it out. That's pretty much a staple in all of Paul's epistles. You're always going to find practical biblical application in how, to, how it looks in our lives, how to carry it out in our lives in Paul's epistles. He had a passion for it. He had a passion for it. And you are always going to find it in his epistles. And in First and Second First and Second Thessalonians, it's no different. Another uh, common theme that runs through both of them is Jesus' return. Jesus' return. When is Jesus going to come back? When is he going to come back? How is he going to come back? What should we be doing in the meantime while we're waiting for him to come back? The people in Thessalonica had this on their mind, and Paul touches on that topic. Not too much, but he touches on it very briefly. And last but not least, one of the common themes of the topic that runs throughout is a topic that we don't hear about too often, honestly. And it's nothing against churches or anything like that. It's just it really is a topic that we don't hear about too often. If anything, it's a topic that when it's spoken about or that when it's mentioned, everybody kind of gets put on edge. Their ears pucker up a little bit. Because the reality is when a lot of us accept Jesus Christ into our heart as our Lord and Savior and we follow him, this topic kind of gets lost somewhere in the wayside because we believe for ourselves that for some odd reason, for one way or another, that this isn't really supposed to happen in our lives anymore because we're following Jesus. But the reality is, is that it does. And the topic that I want to talk about with you guys today is suffering and persecution. Suffering 
and persecution. You see, Paul was concerned about the believers in Thessalonica because they were going through persecution. They were going through persecution and they were suffering for it. Because of the melting pot of all the different types of religions and all the different cults and all the different cultures that were going on and all the different belief systems that were happening in Thessalonica at the time, if anything were to go wrong in the city, anything, didn't matter what it was, the Christians would get blamed for it. The believers would get blamed for it. They would get blamed because the Christians were the only ones that weren't sacrificing to their gods. The Christians were the only ones that weren't worshiping their gods. And any problem that arose in the city at the time, it, it, they, the people in the city believed that, listen, our gods are mad at us. They're upset with us because not everybody in the city is doing what needs to be done. And guess who's not doing it? The Christians, the believers. So the people figured, if the believers are the problem, then we're going to use the believers as the solution. There's a really cool quote from an early Christian author who wrote about this particular time, who wrote about this particular moment in history. And he says this, if the Tiber, which is a, a really famous river over there, if the Tiber rises too high, meaning that, you know, it would cause a flood, it would wipe out the crops and wipe out all the valuables. Or if the Nile, we all know the Nile River, or if the Nile River too low, meaning that it, there wouldn't be enough water for everybody or enough water for crops, there would be a famine. So if the Tiber River rises too high and causes a flood or the Nile too low and causes a famine, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lions. That was the mentality. I know what. Oh, we're going through a drought. Rally up some Christians. We'll make it right. All because they wouldn't participate. All because they wouldn't worship. All because they wouldn't celebrate. All because they stood their ground and decided that the only God that they are going to worship is Jesus. And that brings me to my first point that I want to share with you. Following Jesus produces a counterculture, holy way of life. Following Jesus produces a counterculture, holy way of life. What do I mean by that? I mean this. I mean, it would be very rare. It would be very rare for any one of us to claim that we follow Jesus wholeheartedly and at the same time be in agreement with everything that is happening in the world. That's what I mean by that. I mean that it would be very rare for any one of us to claim that we follow the Lord wholeheartedly and at the same time be in agreement with everything that is happening in culture, with all of the belief systems that are popping up, with all of the truth claims that people are tossing out that aren't really truths at all. Following Jesus produces a counterculture, holy way of life. It naturally happens. All you have to do is just open up the word of God, read a couple of pages, and then look at the status of the world. And you can be like, you know what? This doesn't match up with that. And if I'm following this, guess what? You're automatically going against that. Automatically. Following Jesus produces that counterculture, holy way of life. 
And it's all because we are choosing to live by his standard and not by the standards of the world. And for the people in Thessalonica, that's the choice that they made. That's the choice that they made. And that choice brought them persecution. It brought them suffering. And we have to realize something off the bat. I hate to burst your bubble. But while we are living on this earth, whether you are a believer in Jesus or you're not a believer in Jesus, the reality is this. Suffering is a part of our lives. Suffering is a part of our lives. We can, we can attend church for the rest of our lives, or we can never step foot in the church ever again from this point forward, and it wouldn't change anything because suffering will always be a part of our lives. But there's a tension there. Did you catch it? Do you feel it yet? We don't like to suffer. We don't. We don't like to suffer. I'm almost positive right now that if I were to have any of the ushers hand out a note to every single person sitting down right now, and on that note there was a question, do you want to suffer, check yes or no, I would get every note back with the box that says no. It would be checked off immediately. I, it, I wouldn't even have to get the note back. Some people would, no, not me, it's not happening. I would get the note back, it would have red ink. Red ink, no, multiple times. It would be in bold for emphasis. Why? Because nobody here, including myself, nobody wants to suffer. Nobody likes to suffer. If, we, if anything, we'll do anything we can to avoid a, a, a situation or a moment that would cause suffering. Oh, you know, I'm not going to go to that place over there. It looks real shady. Some bad things can happen over there. And if some bad things happen over there, I might suffer. I'm not going. You know what? I'm not going to be friends with this particular individual because they're always in the middle of something and they look like they're not having a good day every day I see them. So I'm not going to be too much friends with those people over there. You know what? I'm not going to my mother-in-law's house. I have suffered enough. If I sit there, I'm suffering. If I can avoid it, I'm not going. Husbands, don't look at your wives right now. Look down. Look down. She's going to elbow in. I'm not going to get out of my comfort zone because there's a possibility. If there's even a hint of a situation that we become aware of that we could possibly suffer, we'll probably avoid it. If there's a potential for it, we'll avoid it. And when that word alone, even right now as I say it, suffering, that word alone, when I speak it, it makes some of us feel a certain way already. For some of us, we could be possibly transported back to a very hard time in our lives. A time when things were so tough that when we finally got out of it, what's the first thing we say to ourselves? I hope I never go through that again. For others, it brings up memories of a tough loss. Maybe a child. Maybe a family relative. Maybe a mother or a father, a close friend. And when that word suffering comes up, a rush of emotional pain stirs up a little bit. For some of us, it brings up recollection of other people's suffering. And we say to ourselves and we pray to ourselves, I hope I never have to endure what they unfortunately are enduring right now. 
For some of us, we suffer because of the ones that we love are suffering. And because of our emotional attachment and because we care so much, even though we're not going through it with them, just by loving them and seeing what they're going through, it hurts us. When a job is lost, there is financial suffering. When we are overwhelmed with our circumstances and our problems, and they are constantly at the forefront of our mind, we suffer mental exhaustion, but we suffer. Sometimes when the integrity of our character gets called into question, by false accusations, we suffer our, the hurt or the damage of our reputation, but we suffer. There are hardships associated with suffering, mountains that have to be climbed, paths that have to be walked, roads that have to be traveled. And all along the way, there is affliction, there's trial, there's trouble, there's tribulation, there's adversity. It's all over the place. All those things, I'm pretty sure you can think of your own, happen when there is suffering. As you can see, there's a reason why we avoid it or why we do our best to try. But as long as we are living on this earth, suffering will always be a part of our lives. And I don't, and I don't want you guys to get confused. For that. I don't mean suffering is going to be a constant part of your lives. That's going to, you know, from, the, you know, from now to the day. No, no. I mean that suffering, there will be seasons of suffering. Seasons of suffering. You can go a whole year and everything will be great. And then COVID hits. There'll be seasons of suffering always in our lives. And because there will always be a season, now more than ever, we have to make sure that we are anchored in him. We have to. Because that is going to determine whether you draw near to God in those moments or whether you drift far away and never really knowing him and never really giving him the chance never really experiencing him. And it all starts with this one question, with this one question. Actually, it starts and it ends with this one question. Who are you going to let use your suffering? Think about that. Who are you going to let use your suffering? There are only two answers to that question. There are only two. There's no in-between. It's either one or the other. Are you going to let the enemy, are you going to let Satan use your suffering for his purposes and his agenda? Or are you going to let Jesus use your suffering for his purpose and his agenda? And the reason why I ask this question is because whether you choose to believe it or not, the reality is your suffering is being used. It is. It's being used. They are being used to shape and they are being used to mold you. But they are being used to shape and to mold you according to who you are let use your suffering. Let me show you what I mean by that in a second. If in the middle of a really bad season of your life, because we all have them, right? If in the middle of your bad season, you find yourself drifting away from God. If in the middle of that season, you find yourself praying less, reading less, trying to be around other believers less, and in the middle of all that, it doesn't really bother you, or you kind of don't really bat an eye, oh, I miss church this Sunday, it doesn't really matter. 
If you find yourself experiencing something like that, guess what? At that moment in our lives, we're being molded. We're being shaped. We are. And I'm pretty sure you can guess by who. It's not Jesus. If in the middle of a season like that, you're experiencing bitterness and resentment, not just towards God, but now, you're, but now it's popping up and it's springing up in all of your relationships. You get bitter and mad and you snap really quick towards other people because you're going through a season of suffering. And they may not seem to understand what it is that you're going through, but all of a sudden they may say, hey, Eddie, what's up? Oh, nothing. I'm doing all right. What, what's wrong with you? Why are you bothering me so much? It's happened. We've gone through things like that. It's because you're being molded and you're being shaped by somebody. If in the middle of your season you can't stop comparing yourself, I'm suffering, but they're not. They're not. I, I follow, they follow Jesus too, but they're not suffering. And all of a sudden, you start to hate a little bit. Man, they follow the same God that I follow. How come I'm the only one that's going through it? It's because you're being shaped. You're being molded. If at the worst case end of that, if you find yourself saying, you know what? This Christian life might not even be worth it. I suffer with God. I suffer if I don't know God. What's the point? It's because you're being molded. You're being shaped. The enemy's goal, Satan's goal, the devil's goal is to bring you as far away from God as he possibly can. That's his goal. That's his agenda. And if you let him use your suffering, he will. He will take away the hope that you should have in Christ, the hope that you should have in Jesus. He'll use your suffering to take that away from you, to make you doubt that he even cares about you. He'll use it to shape and to mold you to leading and to believing that lie. But the opposite of that is also true. If in the middle of that season you find yourself drawing closer to God, you're praying more, you're reading more, you're seeking fellowship with others, you're going around and and all of a sudden you want to be near other believers. You want to develop your relationships with other people because of testimony and you find yourself not being like mad or upset or anything, but you find yourself being surrounded by love and you're okay with it. Even though you are suffering, you're being molded. If in the middle of your season, thankfulness and gratitude start springing up instead of resentment and bitterness, guess what? You're being molded and shaped. If your season is marked by compassion and not comparison, if it's marked by gratitude and not guilt, if it's marked by love, if it's marked by endurance, if it's marked by patience, if it's marked by having a good attitude towards the relationship with other people, if it has a good mark on it, the reality is this, you are being molded and you are being shaped by someone and that person is Jesus. Because in the same way the enemy wants to use your suffering to draw you away from him, Jesus wants to use your suffering to draw you closer to him. He wants to use it to draw you closer to him, to realize that the Christian life, that living for Jesus is worth it. 
and that the only way to get through it sometimes is to let our Lord and Savior use it. The only way through it is to let him use it. He wants to use our suffering to build us into his purpose. He wants to use our suffering to encourage us, to bring us into relationship, to make us feel like we are more than conquerors, but through him. He wants to use our suffering to show us his great and precious promises, to show us his forgiveness and his mercy, to mold our character, to give us the light of hope, the very thing that the enemy is trying to take away from you. You can see there's a contrast here, obviously. That's why there are only two answers to that question. Who are you going to let use your suffering as you are going through it? Jesus wants to mold our character more into the likeness of him. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our, what's that word? Sufferings. But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. But here's the kicker. That little small list that you just got right there, that can only happen. It can only happen if you let Jesus use your suffering. So I have a quick question for you before we move over to the churches in Thessalonica. Who are you letting use your suffering? If you're going through that season right now, Who are you letting use your suffering? Paul was so concerned about the believers in Thessalonica that he sent Timothy over to them first because he wasn't able to go. He sent Timothy over there because he knew they were suffering. He knew they were going through persecution. So he wanted to get word specifically what was going on before Paul would write his epistle. Now, Paul is no stranger to persecution or suffering. He's gone through it himself. But he wanted to get specifics because he wanted to know what he should write about. But when Timothy returned, Paul was taken back. He was overwhelmed. He was elated. He was thankful because the people had answered the question. They had answered it. And I almost kind of feel like as Paul was starting to write his epistle, when Timothy got back, he came back in the middle of him writing because Paul was like, listen, let me just show you what I was thinking about before I got Paul's, before I got Timothy's good news. Let me just show you what I was thinking about before Timothy came in and gave me some good news. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, this is what Paul was writing before Timothy's good news. He says this, I was afraid, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. What efforts is he talking about? The efforts of the planting of the church, of giving them the gospel, of showing them faith and how to live for Christ. Those are the efforts that he's talking about. But did you catch what he said, though? Look at how, look at how Paul addresses their persecution and their suffering. Did you catch it? 
he addresses it with the possibility of who could use it. He addresses it with the possibility of who could use it, the tempter. Listen, Paul has been through persecution. He's been through suffering. He knows what it's like to go through all of those things. He's not trying to take away from their suffering or take away from their persecution. He's not demeaning the fact that, hey, listen, I know you're going through this, but this is what I'm really worried about. No, no. He knows that at the brass tacks, at the nitty gritty, at the bottom of it all, the thing that describes, the thing that's most important when you're going through something like this, when you're going through a season like that, he knows that the most important thing is who is using it. It's who's using it. So he kind of doesn't address the persecution. He doesn't address their suffering. He addresses the one that could possibly use it. And he's letting them know, I was afraid that the tempter might have tempted you away from everything that we had given you, from the gospel, from Jesus himself. Because that's his goal. His goal is to bring you away from Jesus. He was afraid that the people would have fallen away. But he continues. He continues in 1 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Immediately after that, that was verse 5. This is verse 6. It's almost as if I, as he was writing that, Timothy comes in. Hey, I have good news, Paul. And Paul's like, huh? Okay, give me the good news. I'll write about it. And this is what he says. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and your love. Verse 7, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, in the middle of their persecution, in the middle of their suffering, they are standing firm in the Lord. They're not drifting away. They're not falling back. They're not backsliding. They're standing firm in the Lord. And I can take one guess why. It's because when it comes down to that question, for them and Thessalonica, The answer was Jesus. The answer was Jesus. They were able to stand firm in the midst of the hardest moments of their life because of who they were letting use that moment. Think about that. They were able to stand firm in the hardest moments of their life because of who they were letting use that moment. And in the same way, too, every single one of us here, you, 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 Every single one of us here, we too would be able to stand firm in the hardest moments of our lives if we did the same exact thing. That instead of getting bitter, instead of getting mad, instead of getting upset, instead of comparing, instead of avoiding and not wanting to go through it, instead of any of those things, but instead trusting, putting our faith in, drawing closer to, reading and praying through it all, standing firm in Jesus Not letting those things take us away, but bring us closer to him. Because the only way we can get through it successfully is if Jesus is at the helm and at the forefront of it. And we're following him through it. (laughs) 
We would be able to stand firm under the most insurmountable pressure of any moment. Because if the answer to the question is Jesus, he got it all covered. You would be able to stand firm in your job. You would be able to stand firm around your friends. You would be able to stand firm in front of unbelieving family members. You would be able to stand firm in the classrooms with all their philosophies and new age nuances that they're trying to toss down your throat. You would be able to stand firm in front of any belief system that is placed in front of you. You would be able to stand firm in the face of a culture that says that God is just one of many gods. It's okay. You have your truth. I have my... No, 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 no. There's only one truth and it's Jesus. You would be able to stand firm in that, not budging to the left or to the right. But only if Jesus is the answer to that question. Can you imagine that in the middle of the toughest seasons, instead of crumbling under the pressure and walking away, you would be able to stand strong. But not because you are strong, but because your strength is in the one who has it all, who controls it all, who is above all and can do all. God can do amazing things through our suffering if we let him. He can. God knows how to use the pain in your life to kill the things that separate you from him. Think about that for a second. We avoid pain, we avoid suffering, but those are the very things that God wants to use to kill the things that separate you from him. God knows how to use the pain in your life to restore the things that were lost, but only if you let him use it. God knows how to use all the bad that can happen and turn it around for your good. In Romans, it says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And when I think about all things, guess what that includes? It includes your suffering. It includes your suffering. Will you let him use it? Will you let him use it to mold you and to shape you? Will you let him use it to build you and to encourage you? Will you let him use it so that he can show himself faithful in your life? Will you let him use it so that he can show you the purpose and the plan that he has for your life? Because you can figure that out through that. Will you let him use it so that he can give you an unshakable hope that no matter what the world, no matter what the culture, no matter what the belief system, no matter what is happening in the famous port city, that you would have that unshakable hope in him? Jesus said it best. He did. He really did. In John 16, he says this. In this world, you will have trouble. Not might, 
Not eh, possibly. No, that's not my words. It's what Jesus is saying. And I'm going by what he's saying. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Remember, there are only two answers to that question. Only two. There is no third. What is yours going to be? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much, my God, for your word. We thank you so much for your encouragement, my God. We thank you so much for your truth, my Lord, which is the only truth that matters, my Lord. And I pray right now, Lord, for every single one of us that is here present, my God, every single one who is watching through the live stream, my God, that if we are going through a season, my Lord, of suffering, whether now or in the future that is coming up, my Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would look and turn to you with the answer, my God, stating and confessing, Lord, that you will be the one that uses it, my God, that you will be the one that takes hold of it, my God, that we would surrender whatever it is that is happening in that season, my God, that we would surrender it to you, my God, because we want you to be the one that uses it, my Lord. We don't want to be bitter. We don't want to be resentful. We don't want to be frustrated, my God. We don't want to be upset. We don't want to be comparing, my God. We don't want any of the negative things that happen as a result of our suffering to happen in our lives, my Lord. All that we want, Lord, is for you to take control of it, my God to show us your promises, your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness, my Lord, to show us the plan that you have as we are going through it, my God, to show us, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are more than enough, my God, that we don't need to go anywhere else, my Lord, while we are going through a season like that, but only to the cross and only to you, my Lord. I know, Lord, that it can get tough. I know, Lord, that it can get painful, my Lord. We know this, my God. But we pray that even through that, Lord, you would comfort us, my God. That you would show us how you want to use it for good, my Lord. And we pray more than anything, my Lord, that as we are going through it and as we are letting you use it, my Lord, that you would use it to mold us and to shape us, Lord, into your character. That you would give us perseverance, my Lord, and that our hope will be solidified in you and no one else, my God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Don't forget to answer the question. Enjoy your week. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch on demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.